Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am delighted to welcome you to what I think, in fact, I know will be an extremely interesting hours webinar on the subject of resources, security and prosperity. And if I can now ask Mark to introduce uh, the session for us. I'm very grateful to you, Hugh, for uh, chairing our uh, session today. Uh, City Forum has been engaged in the resilience project uh, supported by the Cabinet Office in this country and, and, and others. And this, we've had four very seriously good uh, sort of conversations virtually uh, in preparing uh, for the main for the big event, which is to take place late in, in, in Q2 this, this year. Michael Minnelli, who's now Lord Mayor, has chaired the first four. And we're very grateful to you, Hugh, for uh, chairing the, the discussion today. Uh, we have uh, a brilliant panel of contributors whom you're kindly going to introduce. We don't have much much time, so I'm not going to introduce, and then you reintroduce. So I shall leave all that to you. Uh, you're guiding the, the, the session and, and um, working out how we use this hour to best effect. And in all the projects we've had uh, with um, ZEN, the hour has been used to very good effect. Well, I'd like to welcome everybody who's participating and everybody who subsequently picks up the, uh, the, 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 the webclave, as a great many people do. Delighted to have you all with us. Hugh, over to you. Mark, thank you very much indeed. Uh, as Mark says, we have an illustrious panel of speakers, and the way we will structure this is that I will invite each of our experts in turn to deliver five minutes in which they will very kindly summarize three or the three threats that they envisage from their area of expertise that we should be paying attention to uh, and we should obviously uh, listen pretty closely. Uh, thereafter, there will be a Q&A and a more fluid discussion where I am very happy to receive questions from the audience, which uh, I will uh, moderate, uh, and we will have a discussion with the uh, panel for the next half hour with a very brief uh, summary and takeaways and closing remarks at the end. Uh, so that's the uh, structure that we're going for. Uh, and I'm delighted to kick off by uh, asking Jay Turner, uh, Professor of Environmental Studies at Wellesley College, to share with us the three threats that, and that's not easy to say, that he would wish to draw to our attention. Jay, over to you, sir. Thanks, Hugh. Uh, well, thanks for having me and for everyone for being here. So the three threats and all of mine are organized around my primary concern of my research, which are the material consequences of scaling up a clean energy transition. I and mean, clearly climate change is an overarching threat, but manufacturing solar panels, the wind turbines, the batteries, you know, electric cars, all of these uh, things that we're gonna need to enable a clean energy transition at a scale and at a pace that's necessary to avoid the worst consequences of climate change, I mean, that's gonna be a massive undertaking. Doing so is gonna allow us to phase out the use of fossil fuels and meet clean energy goals, right? That's critical, but doing that's gonna mean scaling up the production of the materials, the critical minerals that are needed for all of these technologies. And you know, so this is a story that's not just about lithium or about rare earths, which I expect many people have heard of, you know, it's also about Lithium, manganese, nickel, graphite, cobalt, and more. Now, 
in kind of framing this, I should be clear that scaling up the production of these materials is vastly preferable to continuing down the path of the 20th century, mining and burning fossil fuels and enduring the consequences of climate change. But in my view, even as we phase out fossil fuels, we've really got to plan carefully to ensure the sustainability of this clean energy transition and the materials needed to supply it. So three threats. And so the first one's actually one I'm not really concerned about, which is I'm not concerned about shortages of these materials, at least in the long term. Evidence indicates that there are ample supplies of the clean energy or the minerals important to a clean energy transition. So my second concern, my second threat, is that even if I'm not concerned about the geological supply of those materials, I'm concerned about our ability to mine and even more importantly, to process those materials into the high grade uh, products needed for clean energy technologies. And right now, China plays an outsized role in processing many of these minerals important to a clean energy transition. In most cases, China isn't mining the materials. Instead, China has built over the last two decades supply chains that funnel those minerals from around the world to processors in China who then produce the materials needed for clean energy technologies. And that poses a significant geopolitical risk as we envision a clean energy transition. China is, you know, we've seen these dynamics at play, right? China's threatened to restrict the exports of materials such as the rare earths and more recently graphite. So that's the second threat. The, the third threat that I see is that while phasing out fossil fuels is essential, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't scrutinize the ways in which the minerals important to a clean energy transition are sourced and processed. Mining these materials imposes local impacts with significant consequences for frontline communities. This has already been in the spotlight with sourcing of cobalt from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, but there are reasons to be concerned about mineral supplies, whether we're talking about graphite from China and nickel from Indonesia or, or lithium from Argentina. So I guess to wrap up my opening here, um, you know, we face an enormous challenge in building the supply chains needed to support a clean energy transition. The good news is that most of this work hasn't happened yet, right? The factories, the mines, the processing facilities still have yet to be be built, which means that there's an opportunity to ensure that they're built in ways that prioritize social justice and sustainability. So I'll stop there. Sorry, Hugh, you're muted. If I can now unmute myself. Uh, and thank Jay very much indeed, and now turn to Candida Whitmill, MD of Penultimate Power, to uh, share the threats that she perceives. Thank you, Hugh. Thank you. Uh, well, my three threat areas are energy, energy, and energy. Um, energy is the lifeblood of civilization. Without it, economies collapse and the societies break down, or they never come out of the starting block in the first place. There's a direct correlation between GDP and the country's access to sufficient and affordable energy. And as you probably know, the terms energy and electricity, they're not interchangeable. Out of the UK's energy demand, only 20% is, elect is electricity and 80% is heat, transport and industrial processes, the hardest sectors to decarbonise and therein lies the threat to security. 
But just let's say for a moment that energy policy is understood, that energy policy is irreversibly intertwined with foreign policy and defence policy. Then it's easy to outline three reasons for energy insecurity. Number one is diminishing supplies. And there's two considerations here. The West is still decades away from moving from a fossil fuel dependent, dominated energy system. And in 2020, for example, the EU's energy mix consisted of up to 70% of fossil fuels. That's oil and petroleum products, natural gas and coal. And, and it imported 58% of the energy that it consumed. So relying on importation of energy assumes easy global access to financially viable exploration and production. Now, renewables have an important role to play, but they come with their own constraints, which I think Jay was touching on with his, with his uh, brief introduction. So renewables expansion relies on the rare earth metals necessary for their construction, and that being accessible and affordable. A single offshore, offshore turbine requires nearly two tonnes of neo-medium alone. So chasing the finite supply of earth, rare earth metals instead of oil and gas is simply replacing one politically controlled source of energy for another. Now, the other consideration is domestically produced energy, and I'll just quickly quote Dr. Tim Stone. He's the chairman of the NIA. There is currently not a single watt of low carbon power capacity in the UK that will still be operating in 2050. Sizewell B might receive a 20-year life extension, but that's it. Net zero by 2050 is about replacing the electricity generation we have now and tripling it in 26 years against global competition for materials, supply chains, and skilled workforce. So briefly, my second point would be persistent energy threat would be persistent instability in energy producing regions and the propensity of certain countries to use energy to serve their political objectives. And thirdly, the strain on global demand, particularly due to future super superpowers such as China and India, and, and hopefully the continent of Africa coming on board where you know, over 500 million people are still living without electricity. So I've deliberately not mentioned climate change. Climate change is indeed a threat, but let's not turn make you know, let's not turn that into another threat by creating a cure that's worse than the disease itself. And the transition to net zero should be powered as dissent, not a crash landing. And it's essential that our politicians do not move too rapidly from complacency to chaos. Thank you. Candida, thank you very much indeed. Succinct to the point and thought-provoking. Let me now turn now to Professor Tim Lang, Emeritus Professor of Food Policy, City University of London, and uh, Tim will share his top three threats. You're on mute, Tim. Um, that should be better. Is that good? That's wonderful. Great. Okay, thanks very much indeed. To be honest, I couldn't decide whether to talk only about Britain uh, because it's, although the declining power, it's quite interesting what's being got wrong and right in food or to look globally. So I'll try to do a bit, a bit of both. Uh, the reason I'm interested in Britain is because I'm doing a study and a report for the National Preparedness Commission. So I'm deeply imbued into what Britain is and isn't doing. 
Uh, but I'm particularly interested in the public. I'll come to that in a moment. Uh, you asked us for three threats very quickly. The last 50 years of a globalization model of production and distribution uh, is now turning out to have been resource wasteful um, and have huge, huge impacts uh, on um, ecosystems, on public health, on um, concentration of power, basically. Um, uh, and it's to some extent symbolized by just-in-time distribution systems, uh, which are brilliantly efficient, but um, easily disruptable. Um, the second threat is that uh, we're not seeing this, we're not acknowledging it, but that's beginning to come up on the agenda. There is a creeping realization at the global level, if you look at the UN level, at national levels, uh, there's a bit of a retreat to uh, national interest, which is understandable, but can be messy. Um, uh, so I see a problem in overproduction and maldistribution, massive um, inequalities of access to good diets in and between societies, and most extraordinarily, even within very rich societies, you're seeing uh, enormous inequalities of life expectancy and diet relatedness being crucial in that. The third threat is before our eyes at the moment, which is we're seeing how food is, to use that ghastly phrase, being weaponized, uh, Russia using it, and whatever your feelings or politics is immaterial. We're seeing it in Israel and Gaza at the moment, where quite overtly, um, both those countries, Russia and Israel, are uh, going against UN post-Second World War approaches and promises only in 2018 not to use um, food as a weapon. But we're seeing that coming in. So I see very big structural threats to which the policy responses are messy at best. The UN can't quite decide whether it's still wanting to produce more and more food, i.e. on the old model, or whether to shift diets and try to be less land and, and resource wasteful, which has followed the last 50 years. Um, uh, but that requires a very big shift in culture. The aspirations of the world to eat like Americans or North Europeans, frankly, cannot be met without destruction of biosystems at the planetary level. Um, and at national level, you're seeing the beginnings of some responses to that, but mostly quite weak. But I'll turn to my concluding remarks, if I may, to this little word we all use now, resilience. I look at resilience very straightforwardly, as everyone does, as the capacity to bounce back after shocks. And my question there is, who? Whom are we talking about? Is it business as usual to return, which is tends to be the thinking in much resilience uh, policy analysis, or is it to a new steady state, which is what most of the science points to? It will not be to a business as usual situation. And, and in that respect, we've got, a, if I can be frank, a certain complacency of default positions. Take my own country, the UK. It's assumed still the UK is so rich you can always afford to buy. Really? Uh, we don't see that in terms of the volatility of world markets. Britain doesn't have an empire anymore, hasn't even got a strong navy, which could protect long supply lines and so on. Um, and it's got into a somewhat fraught state of reliance upon the European Union, which it says it doesn't want to be a member of, but which provides almost 
a vast proportion, 75% of all food imports. It has in theory, the UK, a very interesting and much admired resilience framework, but that doesn't talk about food at all. On the National Risk Register, 88 risks are now identified. Food only applies in about one of them. And yet food is one of the 13 critical national infrastructures uh, which are supposed to be taken seriously. We have a structure in Britain going back to the Civil Contingencies Act 2004, uh, which set up a whole system of local resilience forums, but those uh, don't address food at all. They're basically what we call blue light brigades, they're ambulance, fire, police, and so on. But they're beginning to realize, that world is beginning to realize um, uh, the, the need for food resilience, i.e. to discuss it with the public. And in my study um, for the National Preparedness Commission, we've been looking at other countries where there are streets ahead of Britain in terms of treating the public as sentient beings and treating the public sensibly as needing to be involved in being prepared for shocks. So I see, to conclude, a, a, a not unfamiliar position. Britain uh, in, certainly been in this situation on other times, but it's not thinking about it. That's perhaps the most worrying thing. At the global level, there is being some thinking. And in rich Western countries, that's clearly uh, beginning to emerge uh, much faster than it is in Britain. But are pictures being based upon and planning for resilience, the capacity to bounce back after shock, are they being based still too much upon assuming we can get back to a business as usual, a conception of normality? I think they are. Should they be? No, I don't think so. I think we need to be thinking very differently about what a resilient society looks like. And that's not been happening. It's very production focused, not consumption focused. And yet it's consumption level that the riots have. Tim, thank you very much indeed. I think I can firmly say you've put food on the menu. Um, Next, now I'd like to turn to Mike Steinmetz, who's recently Rhode Island State Cybersecurity Officer and Homeland Advisor to Governor Gina Raimondo, and he's an associate of the City Forum. Mike, we were delighted to hear your thoughts. Hey, uh, Hugh, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to divide my comments into uh, the what about three of the top eight of mine, where those uh, threats happen and uh, what to do about them. Um, and in my short five minutes, uh, just an observation, um, you're gonna have about, uh, I'm gonna have about four minutes and 55 seconds longer than this audience will have to react to uh, the threats that I'm going to discuss here. Um, there are about eight top threats when we start talking about what Gartner now reports uh, that by 2025, those traditional adversaries will likely weaponize operational technology with an eye towards killing humans. Let me say that one more time. Weaponizing operational technology, think about that German forge uh, and furnace that went uh, critical, to weaponize it to kill humans. All right. So. Of these top industrial control system, OT, IoT threats, what, what should I mention today? One is traditional and two are emerging. Uh, we all know about botnets, but botnets are going to be enhanced by AI uh, to the point that they are uh, ever more indistinguishable 
from your regular traffic, and they will be um, amplified by the most uh, onerous of ransomware. We've uh, that saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. Well, you ain't seen nothing yet, okay? Uh, two emerging that you should be discussing, quantum cryptography. If you're not talking about a strategy in your government office or in your private sector business about uh, what you're going to do in a post-quantum world, uh, what's going to happen to AES, public key infrastructure, you need to start that now. Uh, and AI and generative AI. And if you don't know the difference, uh, make yourself aware. Uh, if you don't have a chat GPT account, get one now. Begin interacting and seeing what this does. So where is all this happening? All right. Um, energy industry gets, you know, the annual uh, Christmas present from Russia to Ukraine that gets a lot of press. Let's talk about some of the other ones that are, are less noticeable. Manufacturing. Zscaler has a recent report out that we can expect beginning in 2024, end of 2023, a 400% increase, a 400% increase in material manufacturing malware. All right. So think of all those things that uh, Jay was talking about early, all those things that do mining. Okay. Uh, 10 ton equipment, et cetera. They're all run by OT. All right. Your automobile is run by OT. So think about that weaponizing and killing people with your automobile. Maritime, these super tankers that go down the Suez Canal, they're all connected by OT. They're a little tiny joystick that, that connects that 90,000 ton vessel to a computer operating system that plugs into a shore system in uh, Cairo or right outside the Great Bitter Lake. Your light bulbs, your fridge, your water heater, they all talk to one another right now. So, and they also are an attack vector. So things, what should this stimulate inside your work area? What is your reaction to this? If you're in an office or any part of a company and you don't know what your reaction to some abnormality, you need to find out now. You need to also discuss what is resilience? Is resilience, like I mentioned at the opening, is that five seconds? Is that five hours? Is that five days for your mining company? Is that five weeks for your government service? I hope not. What is the role of government in all this? I've been on both sides of a rate case in a, in a power company. I know that seems unusual, but a rate case that I wrote and being read by a state. And I can tell you that on the state side, they don't understand the profit motive. They don't understand margin. They don't understand cash flow. All right. And on the state side, they don't really understand the perspective of, of the public and the public utility. So that uh, open ex parte or parte dialogue, if it's not taking place, make sure it takes place. The role of supply side, if you don't know where your third party vendors are coming from, you don't know what they're using, you don't know how they're going in to your systems, um, you need to find out right away. And and this is this is kind of sensitive. You don't if you're in an organization, be it a government office or at a board meeting, and digital security is not a chosen priority, and you can tell via red flags and the dot, you can tell. You can tell whether your government director of your office has absolutely no clue about what's going on in the digital world. You need to decide personally what you're going to do about it, or you need to decide what's going to happen when you're the recipient of the outcomes of that. 
Uh, one last uh, thing. Cyber attacks aren't always about the machinery stopping, the lights going out, the gas being vented off. It's not about that. Remember, uh, most threats are in systems over 200 days before anybody even discovers their day, they're there. And I just would leave you to this. You know, if you think about it's day 210, do you know where the adversary is in your system? Because the adversary is in your system. Are they being effective? I don't know. But do you know where they are? Do you have systems to ferret out where they are? So I'll leave you with that. Thank you. Mike, thank you very much indeed. Hugely uh, appreciate it. Uh, very thought-provoking. And uh, I'd now like to turn to Dorothy Wickham, who owes we owe a special thanks to because uh, it is about two o'clock in the morning where Dorothy is. Uh, and to my slight alarm, she's disappeared from my screen, but may well be reappearing as we speak. Dorothy, I was just giving you special credit for your stamina uh, being with us at two o'clock in the morning. Dorothy is the editor of the Melanesian News Network. Uh, you're on mute at the moment, Dorothy, but I'm delighted to turn the floor over to you. Thank you and good morning from Honiara, which is the capital of, of uh, Solomon Islands. I'd like to um, share what I think uh, are the threats uh, to my country and maybe to my region, which is the Pacific. I think uh, I, when I sat and actually thought about it, and I, I think it's climate change, health, and education. Now, climate change is one of the biggest, I think, threats to us in the Pacific. As you know, we, we are small and low-lying islands, and then we depend a lot on the sea, not only for food, but also transportation and everything else that we need. And I think as we have witnessed um, the effects of the changes in the climate, there's been predictions that the cyclones will be stronger. Um, and if we do have earthquakes and then the, the tsunamis will be bigger. And of course that would affect um, us in, in, in very, very um, bad ways because we don't have the land mass that maybe countries like Australia or United States or even the UK have. We are very small islands. So when the climate starts to change, it will definitely affect our water supply, our food. And, uh, and it's just the basic ability to, to survive that will be affected. And that's the reason why I have included health in it. Because when our food gets affected and our water supply gets affected and the climate starts to change, it affects health. And uh, I'm sure people who have read up about the Pacific and my country specifically, we do not have the health facilities that the Western world has to be able to cope with outbreaks of, you know, whether it's diarrhea or it's just common cold that has gone, you know, spread across town and you see our hospitals and our clinics suffer very much, uh, very much under those small pressures. So it's going to be worse if we did have big disasters 
we wouldn't be able to cope with that. And I say education because the reason is you cannot have unhealthy people who are not living well, not eating well, be educated. And when they're not educated, then it affects the choices they make in terms of what they consider is important for them as a people and as for their country. And I think our governments in the Pacific and specifically my country need to realize this and then start to work on um, policies that ensure that if we do have a very big um, natural disaster that we are prepared and ready to be able to handle it and also have the health facilities to cater for those who are affected by such a, such a disaster and then also to protect uh, the ability of our children to be able to continue to go to school, be educated, to be able to cope with all these uh, negative impacts on, on their daily lives. And sometimes we in the developing world are so bogged down in trying to develop ourselves that we are focusing on things that are do not really address these issues. I mean, we always say, oh, you need to develop. And then you start to question, what do they mean by that? They say, oh, we need to build better roads and better bridges and better wharves and so that it will uh, boost economic activity, which will make the country develop. But then when there's a national disaster, all those don't matter because you are back to where you were without those infrastructure. So I think if the people are not ready, uh, educated enough to know what are the risks and what, how they can look after themselves under such a situation, if they're not healthy enough also to cope with, it, with something like this, then I think we, we are at serious risk if our government doesn't um, look into these issues and make the appropriate policy adjustments or even create laws that could help to prepare uh, small countries like ours. And I I was listening very closely to Tim, Jay, and uh, uh, Candida about the, the issues that you've brought up. And they all, in, uh, in basic ways, relate to um, countries like mine. Um, the high cost of electricity or power, it, it's one of the biggest hindrances we have. Solomon Islands is known to have one of the most expensive uh, cost of uh, electricity, which then affects everything else, which is, you know, uh, schools, it's business, it's just running a hospital, and then all these simple uh, things that other countries would take for granted. We, we do uh, suffer a lot as a result. So that would be what I think would be our risks and something for our part of the world to be thinking about. Thank you. Dorothy, thank you so much. Well, I feel we've got a truly global perspective encapsulated in the contributions of our five speakers. And I think there are a whole series of uh, common threads and themes emerging, which uh, I will uh, start the discussion on. But I will also say to audience, uh, please do submit questions 
uh, via the uh, chat function because uh, we'll be delighted to receive them. Uh, one thread I heard throughout the uh, uh, contributions was that of inequality. Inequality of access to skills, to deal with cyber threats, to food, to health, to energy, and to resources. And clearly, inequality is headed in a direction that's going to make life more uncomfortable for many. And perhaps I can ask each of the speakers to give a, a few sentences on how they think a greater equality, if not democratization, could be achieved uh, to counteract the inequality that uh, they all, I think, I would be fair in saying, highlighted in their contribution. And maybe just run through in the same order as contributors. So, Jay, if I if I might ask you to uh, to kick off. Sure, well, it's fascinating to hear everybody's thoughts and contributions here. Um, Hugh, to your specific point, I mean, this is an urgent concern about addressing climate change and a clean energy transition. And I think, you know, it speaks to the role of government, right? Without clear policies that are geared towards addressing issues of inequity, you know, in my context, my research focused on sourcing these materials and deploying clean energy technologies, you know, without government intervention, that is very unlikely to happen. Uh, I think, you know, in the United States, um, we have a very uneven uh, record on climate leadership, but the Inflation Reduction Act, the big piece of legislation passed uh, a year and a half ago, you know, contains elements of um, you know, policy aimed at making clean energy technologies more accessible, um, focusing on the sustainability of the supply chains that uh, are important to these technologies. So I think you know, there are some emerging models for how we might do this better moving forward, but I guess you know, emphasizing the importance of uh, government and good policy and facilitating this. Thank you. Canada, we've heard over the last 18 months, two years, the phrase energy poverty in the UK, as well as in clearly other parts of the world. Um, how do you think we can uh, get a better equality of access to critical resources like energy? Uh, and just to say you're on mute. Um, yes, Hugh. Well, I think the, 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 with equality, I mean, the, with energy, it's, it's absolutely vital. Just from from the top, you know, from obviously from a, a personal point of view, but also from a business point of view. And a lot of work that I've done in the past has been getting trying to ensure that our businesses are competitive uh, in this energy market. That we are trying to do a, a, a huge a challenge, trying to transition from energy where we are now. Um, to where we're going forward, but it's actually going to increase inequality because it, it, take electric cars, for example, it's pricing us out, a lot of the market out, and it's going to be much harder to initially to be able to, to reconcile um, energy across the, uh, across the population. Um, but yes, I mean, inequality, I would just pick up on a point that Dorothy said that interests me. She said about education, about on the, the, um, the major issues, you know, the, the earthquakes and things that will happen. And I was just thinking of Japan, where the children are taught from, from a very, very early age. And it's just from generations they've been doing this. They have a system in place where everybody knows exactly what to do when, when something happens. And, and I think that could be translated into so many other issues across, you know, from energy, from you know, going forward and taking that. That's what I feel. 
Thank you very much. Tim, I know that, you know, relative to the world, we in the UK are, are incredibly food rich. However, we do hear of people using food banks more than ever before, but that's a sort of microcosm of a macrocosm of inequality around the globe in terms of access to quality food. How can we get things to better? Well, the short answer is with difficulty. Uh, but uh, it, at the moment, it's not getting leadership, if, if I'm honest. We're, you're getting vague and rather grand um, statements at the global level, UN, but that's because the UN has no power. It is a member state membership organization uh, and can't tell anyone to do anything. Um, but at the national level, uh, in many societies, there are these uh, tensions. You're quite right to pick up on it. Um, for me, that's why I'm my work for the National Preparedness Commission are focusing on what I call civil food resilience. I'm not just interested in food system resilience, but on civil resilience, engaging with the public. And there is quite a lot of resistance to that. But ultimately, it becomes, as one of my interviewees said, said in, in a, uh, an interview, um, you know, there's a limit to how much food I can store how individuals can store, and it assumes everyone's got the money to be able to lay down stores. There's a very difference between individuals trying to store food and prepare for crises uh, and a collective recognition that we rely upon each other in a crisis. And that's the difference, really. And to some extent, that's taking the West, and I'm talking about the West, picking up very much on the Melanesian and the, the small island states perspective. Um, that uh, it's very easy for rich countries. Uh, they could be doing things about it, but they're not. It's actually good news to Melanesia. You see the rich failing to address the problems, actually, um, and still assuming that individual solutions in diet, in health, in preparing for crises are the way to deal with crises. I think what this whole debate does, and I think it comes across all of our talks, our mini talks, is that these are structural matters. Even the very rich cannot avoid the need for societies to start trying to sort out resilience in a more collective way, not an individual way. And I see that as a moral issue, but in particular, it's actually a cultural issue. It's one about bedding down. Um, and certainly we found, my team and I, in the study we've been doing, that it's very interesting. Some countries are further ahead in thinking about it and thinking collective solutions because they know government's going to fail. If your country is invaded by a big power, you're not going to be able to feed your people. So there's got to be some bottom-up preparedness and resilience built in to their capacity to deal with crises when governments may fail, and indeed will fail, almost certainly. Thank you very much. Mike, I, I've long thought my refrigerator had it in for me. Uh, and uh, your, your session demonstrated it probably does i shall only ever go into the kitchen armed in future yeah um, you were eloquent on, on threats better beware what that device chucks out at you next time you exactly um, the um what a great and thought-provoking area because your question to me strikes to the origin what is the origin of that inequality that we're talking about and we i can't help but connect with Candace and Dorothy. Thank you. Okay, I'll, I'll take this a bit so that maybe when he comes back online, I should be uh, finished speaking. But I was, I 
took note of what he said about having a collective um, approach to it or actually a bottom-up approach to it because and then he mentioned Melanesia and 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 the word that stuck out to me was also culture because culturally we de- do always think uh, we always do things as a community um, and that we always work not only as individual or nuclear unit families which is husband wife children we are always connected and we always live in large families which um, culturally teaches us to be able to work as a big group to address whatever it issues it is whether it's a good thing or bad thing say for example a wedding or death so i agree with that sentiment that maybe to deal with some of these issues we need to be able to reach out to to people and and take the bottom up approach however to understand some of the issues that we will we will we are we will we are facing and will be facing into the future there's also that education aspect there there needs to be a little bit more uh um not a little bit more but a huge push by government to ensure that education is a is a big priority for for somebody who lives say maybe in the mountain mountains of malaita or one of these isolated islands in 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 png or in vanuatu or in solomons i'm talking melanesia here to be able to understand why is all this changing and what is it within their own culture and their own setting that they can use to overcome these problems but unless this education component is pushed and it's made a priority by government then we will not be able to have people understand and to make the choices that they have to uh to progress themselves or to deal with a disaster for example in our case it would be a huge cyclone or even to be able to understand why you should not be living along the coast too much now or why you should be thinking about not building close to rivers because that's culturally has been what we used to do before for the you know how many generations is we live close to the water for access to water and we also live close to the sea because of access of food and for also to be able to travel island to island but then to of course be educated enough to understand that there are these big global issues now happening that we need to change some of the things we do but at the same time keeping to some of our cultural um, how would i say cultural practices that would help us in a natural disaster which is pulling together as a group and as a community or as a village or or an island to be able to sustain ourselves to overcome food shortage water shortage and shelter and just basic uh taking care of each other during a natural disaster it's probably of little comfort to you dorothy but there was in fact uh, there are quite severe floods in parts of the uk at the moment and there was someone on uh, the media this morning explaining that for the last 2000 years we have built near water near rivers and the sea in the uk so we 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 are catching you up with a tendency to flood 
Mike, I'm so sorry. Uh, we, we lost you. We couldn't hear uh, what was clearly some excellent contribution. Can you hear us now? No, I don't think Mike can hear us. And I'm fairly certain we still can't hear him. I don't know, Sasha, if you can give him a call and perhaps get Mike to uh, rejoin. Um, let me turn now to an excellent question from the audience, from Shane Drinian, who is asking, what kind of resilience do governments have in reserve to deal with threats that we considered, and here we go, unknown unknowns? I mean, that way Dick Cheney and madness lie, but uh, uh, there is uh, something to be said around the unknown unknowns because they are obviously the most difficult category of threat to, to deal with. Um, if I'm if I might, candidate, perhaps uh, you, you from an energy perspective, you could uh, share some thoughts on that. Yeah, so I was just thinking initially of the COVID situation, which was, should not have been an unknown unknown because it had been predicted for some time that such a thing could happen. Uh, and 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 of course we 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 burnt our bridges. I think we used an awful lot of goodwill for the an incredible level of compliance that we had to. As a collective to get together and 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 to act against this uh, this dreadful virus, and it sort of begs the question where we could actually get the population to do that again should another disaster strike us, because that trust in government from which we are take our leadership from has definitely diminished after what happened through the you know, the three years of on and off lockdown. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really good point. Um, Tim, what do you think about the unknown unknowns? You, you've given us a list of known uh, challenges. Well, the basic issue that matters, and I'll pick up on Canada, is the, the revolution in the food supply systems of the last 50 years, or 60 years, has got rid of storage. Storage is on the motorway. Storage is now removed almost entirely through the application of just-in-time distribution systems and the software and all of those issues that have come forward in other, in other talks here. Um, uh, and, but the, the counter-argument to that is that the, um, the lack of storage merely means the food is somewhere else in the world. So the storage may not be there at the national level or the domestic level, but it's somewhere. But that's why in my little talk, I reference quite a lot to the UN system because the World Food Programme is the antidote to just in time. It's the system that's supposed to kick in when things are very hard, which is why, although it's very delicate politics, I refer to Ukraine and also Israel Gaza, uh, because you're seeing the difficulty of that welfare safety net at the global level to, to operate. It assumes um, things are normal, but what if they're not? Uh, and that is uh, the problematic, as the French would say, we've got. Um, uh, and it's why in my thinking and in my report for the National Preparedness Commission, I've, I've asked uh, and it's agreed that I focus on civil resilience. Is there any way we can try to build up the public as engaged participants in that? Uh, and in that sense, funnily enough, it goes in exactly the same argument supply and energy. 
if we reduce demand, that actually creates a sort of a, a greater bandwidth for resilience. If we alter uh, the heavy impact of how people eat and what they eat and where they get it from and the means by which it's distributed, uh, it builds a bit more resilience into the system. But ultimately in food, uh, you've got to have some. Uh, and if you, you can eat only once a day and get sufficient nutrients, but the food's got to be there in some form or other. So the lack of the capacity to bounce back after shock, I keep returning. We use this word resilience much too loosely, and it's used in a corporate world, bearing no resemblance to the ecosystems or, or the physics use of the term uh, resilience. Resilience is about being prepared to bounce back after shock. And my input to this on food is to say, what about the people? Are we including the people in building civil resilience? And interestingly, some countries are beginning to now do that. Mike, thank you very much indeed for logging off and logging on again. I hope you can hear us now. Uh, I do want to loop back to uh, your commentary that we could see but not hear uh, on the inequality issue. And then I'm going to go through some more questions from the audience. Yeah, very. Um, can you hear me OK? We can. Thank okay, you, thanks. sir. Thank you for the thumbs up. Um, it just really struck me, uh, the dialogues about uh, food and, and inequality and energy uh, resonate. To, to have resilience in the digital world means that you need to train to it. If you can't educate to it, if you can't educate human beings and raise digital literacy, um, there's no hope of competing because as all your financial experts out there know, it's speed to market, speed of your information systems that give you the competitive edge. So as Dorothy was talking about uh, and educating an entire population, you, you can't even begin to compete uh, in this area. Also, the comments about energy are so topical at, at this point because there's a nexus between energy and water. Uh, and we are soon uh, running out of clean water uh, and you can't educate and feed people properly. Um, and you can't uh, build your infrastructure that it's going to take to compete both uh, technologically and educationally and scholarly and all those other areas. You can't do that without the proper amounts of energy and the proper amounts of clean water. I'll just leave it at that. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to sort of go through a number of questions and probably ask one person to uh, answer in turn. Um, we've got a contribution from Phil Williams. By the way, Phil, thank you very much. You're quite right. It's Donald Rumsfeld, not Dick Cheney. Um, but uh, I'm going to ask Jay to pick up this uh, curveball. Uh, and Phil intelligently asks, this year, two billion people will vote in elections. But the politicians with their short term focus on the next election best place to implement the changes that uh, panelists are advocating? And if not them, who can? I'm deeply mindful of the politics being in the United States, looking at an election next year and wondering if the policies we've seen put into place over the last three years are going to continue on. Um, right. I mean, the kind of asymmetry between the short time frame of politics and the long term challenges that we're discussing here are essential. I, you know, I, I don't have the answer or the resolution to that. But I guess one thought that I'll offer on this topic is that, you know, I think education good information, you know, that is essential to making good decisions. And I think, you know, 
how artificial intelligence, how the digital digitalization of everything, how that makes it very hard, right, to know what is true, what is um, back, what we can count on. I mean, that is becoming, you know, we're losing a compass, right, to guide us through this world is we're flooded with information and, you know, the potential of more and more of that information being generated um, artificially. So, you know, thinking about politics and how information pay, plays into politics and policy, you know, those are concerns I have. Thank you. Tim, there's one definitely with your name on it from Madeleine Moon. Have we pale, failed to pay enough attention to Russia's long-term invasion planning to immediately control farms, harvesting crops and farm machinery to send back to Russia? Fields were then sown with mines to make them unusable for the future. Many countries then faced famine as they relied on wheat, sunflower oil and fertilizer from Ukraine, and Russia stepped in with the aid of in the form of crops stolen from Ukraine. This also caused severe feud shortage in Ukraine to undermine resilience. Are we doing enough to help farmers in general? I won't ask you to comment on the uh, Ukrainian situation, doing enough to help farmers in general understand their frontline role. Uh, no, I think we're not. Um, I think it's, if, if the we there is Britain, Britain isn't. Uh, the present government in Britain is very nervous about this. It's very worried about uh, retaining some semblance of the rural vote, but as a um, as a, a world, uh, we're still not thinking through the implications of again. I use this ghastly word: the weaponization of food that we're seeing. It, it's a kind of part of the picture of undoing almost all of the moral thinking in post Second World War Reconstruction. The UN Declaration on Human Rights, the right through to the UN Security Council's um, uh, statement on, in 2018, uh, uh, urging member states not to use food as a weapon of war. We're, we're, we're kind of going back into a very brutal politics, which puts farming into the front line. But picking up the theme of what can we do about that? One of the issues very definitely we need to be doing much more um, is to diversify. Uh, the food system from production to consumption is very, very concentrated in power. Farm, farms get bigger and bigger worldwide. Even in small landholding food economies in the developing world or low-income countries, um, that is the case. But in the rich world, the, the size of farms is enormous. Uh, and mostly it's becoming more inefficient, more resource dependent, um, more dependent upon huge amounts of energy, hidden energy and direct energy fertilizers to increase output and the treadmill is operating. And farmers now are aware of that, both in the rich world and the poor world, but they're not yet being helped off. And the fundamental issue uh, that lies uh, as the infrastructure for civil food resilience is to get more of the money that consumers in urban areas pay to get direct to primary producers, because mostly the profits are taken by um, value adding after food leaves the land, when it becomes processed in factories, truck transported, even the delivery systems now in the rich world are taking as much money as primary producers get. And that, in a sense, is probably mad, actually. In the 21st century, we're going to have to decentralize more, diversify more, um, and reconnect 
in what some people call bioregionalism. Where possible, one can't in any way feed the world only by going entirely local because it depends on what your terrain is, the climate, the variability and so on. And having some trade is really good for resilience. It means someone else can supply you with food um, if you can pay for it um, when when you have that shock or, or mega disruption. So it's a very, very good question that was being asked. But the short answer is diversity, shorter chains, smaller scale, um, more robust capacity to be resilient, uh, whereas big players are very easily disrupted. Thank you very much indeed, Tim. I think we've time for one last question. I really want to ask this question to Dorothy. I, I want the, the Pacific perspective on this. As um, I think you and your community will have a, a, a different view of this from, from the so-called West. Uh, and it's a great question from Malcolm Waugh. And it's how do we knowledge share on this and use the lessons learned from experience to benefit globally? Um, that's a question I'd love your perspective on, Dorothy, to, to wrap up our session. That's a tough one. Um, I think just by watching the news and what's going on around the world, sharing is, is not being really practiced anymore. Uh, you know, by societies. I think uh, the, you were talking earlier about the war in Ukraine and how that has affected war, uh, food supply, fuel, oil, and all this sort of stuff. So you imagine um, if COVID had dragged on a little longer, if they had not quickly found a vaccine for countries like mine, how we, how we would have survived if it had gone on longer than it had because we were actually um, one of the first countries to lock our border down and also one of the last ones to open because the government was very concerned that we didn't have the, the capability to, to deal with something like that. But I think if, you, if we look at sharing to ensure that we are able to bounce back, so to speak, um, to be resilient, I think we, we need to look back into history, I think. And I think for us in the Pacific, we know how that is done for ourselves culturally, but we are small societies, you see. Uh, I... I think we may have lost Dorothy. No, I you're said back, Dorothy. Sorry. Now we have lost Dorothy. Uh, well, what can I say? What a fantastic exploration of a whole series of issues. Um, and I'm, I would like to thank Mark and City Forum for getting us together. I would very much like to thank the speakers. I would like to thank Dorothy and Mike, Tim, Candida and Jay for tremendous contributions and to the audience. And uh, I wish all of you a tremendous uh, rest of the day, rest of the afternoon, rest of the evening. And in your case, Dorothy, all of the rest of the day uh, once you get some sleep. And thank you so much for attending this afternoon. Very much appreciated. Go well all.
Thank you. Thank you.